time. Welcome to Service Headline News. I am your host, Marty Smith, and I'm joined by Eric Perrot. What's going on, guys? And we're here to bring you the latest headlines and updates pertinent to all servicemen and women. So sit back, get informed, and have a laugh as the Swearing in Podcast presents Service Headline News. Uh, we have Jake Wall is on assignment today for all you Jake Wall fans out there. Uh, he'll be back with some rip-roaring stories next week. But in the meantime, we have a special guest, retired Air Force Master Sergeant Ron Denman. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Ron. Oh, glad to be here, man. <laughs> Loving it. Uh, just a quick background on Ron. You can find his interview on the Swearing In podcast. Uh, Ron grew up in Southeast Houston, Texas. Is that important to say Southeast Houston? To people as that are from just, <laughs> as it just opposed to Houston, yeah, the people that are from Houston, that that makes a big difference. Okay, <laughs> uh, you did a few semesters at Texas A and M before joining the Air Force in '82. Uh, your initial job was a combat controller, so that's good because we got a story on that. Um, you later switched over to a oh, to combat camera, right? Right. And you yeah. assigned to Luke as Luke Air Force Base, Arizona, for your first assignment. Right. Uh, later, you did. Uh, you did. There you go. There you go, Eric the cop. You, you did some OSI special agent time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seven years. <laughs> uh, before you finally retrained into Intel, uh, and you retired in two thousand seven out uh, out of Buckley. That's it. Well, Ron, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate that. Your perspective uh, is going to be great. And I, one of the things I wanted to tell you um, is, Eric, you went to Panama for what? For what operation? Because I screw it up every time. The first Nimrod Dancer? Yes. Okay, you went for Nimrod Dancer. Uh, and while you were there, yeah, you got pinned down by a sniper. T tell that story again real quick. That is incorrect. Not in Panama. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it was Operation Urgent Fury, and that was Grenada in October of 83. So you went to both. I did, but I wasn't. Okay. In, I, like I, I told you in, in Operation Nimrod, I was escorting money. Right, right, right. But Urgent Fury I was where you got pinned down. So we were deployed. My 44-man team, the cop team, was deployed to Little Rock. Uh, Air Force Base for Air Base Ground Defense Training. That was It was a joint regional training center. And uh, we got a warning order that said we were going to be deploying for real. Is this 89? 83. Oh, 83. So, oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, 1983. Oh. So we flew back uh, the team from New Jersey, dropped them off, flew to Pope Air Force Base. We got an ammunition pallet. Got to eat breakfast, and on the next morning, which was Tuesday morning, no, Wednesday morning, they invaded on Tuesday. We got there Wednesday evening at Point Salinas, the airport right there. So we set up uh, fighting positions on the airport as well as on the runway oh, to God. keep the runway and uh, the airport open while the Army was doing outside the perimeter patrolling and trying to rescue students. And take down the uh, Cuban government or whoever they were trying to instill back then. Right, right. So I was a fire team leader as a senior airman. Uh, senior airman, man. <laughs> you know, um, at the time, I was carrying a 203, an M203 grenade launcher. Nice. And we were doing uh, protection of uh, radio-free Grenada. So the radio station. We had Navy guys assigned to that. And uh, we came under some sniper fire for about four hours. So I was stuck hiding behind this big deuce tire for quite a while. <laughs> and I said, oh, boy, is this the way this is going to end? Like Ron said. So yeah. I was uh, that's my one and only lifetime threat. And I don't need any more of them. <laughs> but I bring that up because. Uh, Ron, you've had some hairy situations, right? Yeah, unfortunately, I had. Uh... Quite a few. I, I, I'll, uh, I'll just go over a couple of them, or just stop me when you when we run out of time. Uh, the first one was actually in '83. I was 
uh, I was still in combat control and I was doing a parachute jump. And this is, is when we used to have these large uh, bags that we would jump with. They're called seaweed bags, combat, combat yeah. weapons and equipment bag. Yeah, that bag and, Yeah, so I was going out of a 141. And if you ever went out of one of those suckers, you know it's a lot of, lot of wind coming out of there. It yeah, sucks you out, man. I'm, I was about 150 pounds. <laughs> I had a hundred pound seaweed bag on me. I go out the door and when that wind hits and, you know, anytime you jump static line, you, yeah. you oscillate under the chute. When I went up, I went all the way up and fell back through the risings. Oh my God. Man. Yeah. Unfortunately, I was upside down. It was, uh, it was about a, I think an 800 foot jump, but I feel I was falling upside down and I just kept thinking, man, it's going to be hard to do a PLF off my head. <laughs> For those that, that know what that is, that don't know, it's a parachute landing fall. Right. Thinking, it's going to be hard to do this PLF. And I was trying to think <laughs> about how I was going to, I was going to angle myself in so I didn't snap my neck when I went in. Now you didn't and, do a, you're, it didn't do a, what do they, what they used to call it? Uh, when your chute folds up. A cigarette roll, or is it a no? No, roll? it didn't. It didn't completely do the uh, May West. They, they call so you, didn't May West. Total, you didn't have a total catastrophic. No, it wasn't total catastrophic, and and I was actually just tangled up in the middle of the risings. God damn. And and I could look up and I could see my shoot, and I thought, okay, this is not going to be good. <laughs> and so I just kept grabbing the risings, and as I got just about to the top of the trees. This was jumping in uh, Fort Bragg. Got to the mm. top of the trees. And I thought, oh, man, I'm less, less than 200 feet off the ground. So I grabbed the risings and pulled away, pulled out as hard as I could and kicked my feet down with everything I had in me. And finally, my feet literally came down. And I thought, oh, good. And then I realized, oh, I'm still going fast. <laughs> I looked up and my chute was partially collapsed. Because yeah. the risings were now under caught under the seaweed bag. Of course. So instead of my parachute being fully deployed, it was only half deployed because it was uh, nearly collapsed. And I just thought, oh, this is not going to be good. But I had enough time that I could pull on. I pulled on that right rising. I saw it was a sand pit. I angled for this sand pit that was out there. And it felt like uh, I jumped off a three or four story <laughs> house when I hit the ground. And did, I you hit, hit, did you hit one four? Because that's what I did on my first. I, I hit the balls of my feet and then my ass. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly what I did. I didn't have a lot of choice because the bag no, was right, right. stuck. I couldn't, I couldn't jettison the bag. It has a little red cherry on the top. You're supposed to pull the cherry and, and hit yeah. it and it falls away. And that thing wouldn't fall away. I was beating on it. It wouldn't fall away. And so when I went in, man, I, I went in oh, smoking. man. And I just thought, okay, I'm probably not going to make it out of this one. And fortunately, I did first, man. Yeah. So, uh, so that that was a pretty ugly day, and uh, I'm still <laughs> suffering from that now. I I still have really? screwed up back. I end up uh, cracking some vertebrae and smashed. Uh, com do you, uh, do you compress the disc? Yeah, compress some discs and oh, got all kinds of issues from that today that I'm still dealing with. Wow. And uh, and that was that was the first that was my introduction to the military world. <laughs> that was like, okay, here it goes. And you know, a few years after that, I got inducted into uh, OSI. It kind of just sucked me into the OSI. I was working on the cover. I was down in San Antonio working against it was uh it was actually a group of military guys but they'd hooked up with this civilian civilian guy who was a dependent husband and he was bringing these drugs in from detroit at the time oh, damn it was uh it was you know detroit was really big in, in into the drug scene and so i went in go on the cover against this guy and you know everything was going great i was sitting in the guy's apartment we we're talking about doing this deal and then all of a sudden he starts freaking out and he grabs his 357 oh, and he sticks it, sticks it up to my temple. Oh, and damn. He, you know, indicating he's going to blow my brains out. Yeah. And so uh, I had to do one of those 
Clint Eastwood kind of things and say, look, if you don't take that gun away from my head, I'm going to take that gun and shove it up your ass. I was scared of shit. I almost, you know, pissed my pants, but I played it off. You got to play and, the card, right? You got to play yeah, the golf I played card, it right? off, man. And I didn't, I didn't freak out because, you know, he thought, oh, you must be a, you know, you must be a cop. Yeah. You know, I'm like, man, I'm no, you know, yeah, yeah. a lot of foul language going on there. So I told him, I, you know, wasn't a cop and blah, blah, blah. And so finally I was able to talk the guy, talk him down. We ended up doing some deals and he ended up going to jail. Wow. He so, never yeah. did. I got to ask Ron, what's yeah. worse, flying upside down on a canopy you can't control or having a 357 press. Oh, right. Yeah. I want to know that too. Oh man. You know, I've never even thought about it in that, in that regard. <laughs> That's, That's a hell of a comparison. I, you know, I really think the canopy thing was worse because I felt like I didn't have any control. Right. You know, as I was sitting there with a the gun pressed against my head, I, you know, I, I was able to feel the guy's hand shake a little bit. Oh, so yeah. I knew that yeah. he wasn't, you know, as confident as his, his voice would indicate. Yeah. So I thought, okay, you know, this guy is nervous too. And so that just made me think, okay, I got, wow. you know, I got a chance here. Uh, I had another undercover operation. I was doing it in Colorado Springs with a buddy of mine, his name was uh, James Parks. And we were going to, at the time, they had some Jamaican posse guys that were there. Mm. And they were they were slinging a lot of dope there. And that's the only time out of the seven years I worked on OSI, it's the only time I, I went on the cover with a partner. And it was just because it was so dangerous. Yeah. So we got in good with this guy that was, you know, he worked on the base. He wasn't a military guy, but he worked on the base. And we got in good with him and his wife. And we, you know, after six, seven months of working on the cover, we got to the point where we were just walking to their, you know, they had a, a little apartment and we would just knock on the door and just keep walking and walking in and start hanging out with these guys. So one day we we're going in there to do this big buy. And, my, and we, of course, were strapped. I mean, we both had had weapons on myself and James. But we walked into this apartment and the lights were off in the living room there were a, a light in the kitchen and so we walked in as we always always do and all of a sudden the hairs on the back of my neck went up i i glanced over to james and he said and he looked to his right and and nodded as if he was he was telling me he had the guy on the right mm. and oh, i just shit. instinctively knew there was somebody behind us Oof. and we had our weapons in these fanny packs that had, that were Velcroed around. I actually still have mine somewhere, but our weapon was in there. And I was literally starting to break the Velcro and going for my gun. When the, when the guy that owns the house, the apartment, when he came running out going, no, 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 no. And he threw his hands up. And as I was breaking the Velcro and spinning around, uh, he got in between us. And the guy that was behind me that was standing behind the door when we walked in was a guy with a shotgun. He was a Damn. Jamaican guy and he had this sawed off shotgun. And I saw that shotgun and I thought, shit, he would have got me before I even, you know, got yeah. to the trigger. Right, right. And I just thought, oh man, that, that was, that was almost really, really ugly. I, I shook for, for hours after that. You know, it wasn't like that TV shit where these guys are all gung ho. We went ahead, made the deal, bought a lot of drugs, sent a, sent all those guys to jail. Yeah. But I shook for a long time. I had a hard time counting out the money, and uh, <laughs> I kept doing right up my, my money count because I was still thinking I couldn't get over the thought that this guy got the drop on me. Yeah, he was, the, you were done. Gun. Yeah. yeah, you were done. My friend, you have had some angels on your shoulders. Oh yeah, yeah, that, and it didn't stop there. Uh, I, you know, now that I think about it, a lot of it happens with OSI. Now, I need to stay away from those people because I was working. I got deployed to Iraq. And by now, this is when we were at Buckley. And so I went to Iraq in 2005. Yeah, I remember that. But when I got there, I had more experience in OSI than all of the, the agents that were at the, the detachment. Oh, wow. Really? And so where'd you deploy it, to? I went, uh, I, I don't know if you remember, there's a big hubbub that happened, but I went, I did two back to back. 
I, I started that. off in Baghdad. You stayed there, right? Yes. I started yeah. off in Baghdad and I did Baghdad. And then the NSOIC, the incoming NSOIC for, uh, it was at the time it was called Talil Air Base. They changed it to, uh, I forget the name, but they changed it to another uh, another name, Ali Air Base. Uh, that's what they changed it to, but they changed it while I was there. So uh, so that NSOIC of intelligence, he had a death in the family, couldn't, couldn't make the deployment, and absent called up because I was uh, about a month and a half from rotating back. And they said, look, you know, we really need a, you know, NCOIC to go down there. We need somebody with your experience. Can you do it? I said, yeah, yeah, okay, sure. And uh, and so I went down. I had more experience than when, when the OSI team there found out I was prior OSI. They pulled my records from OSI. And then they, they came over. They talked to the uh, the group commander and said, look, you know, we, this guy has some really valuable skills. We really need him. And so they detailed me from my intelligence office over to OSI to do operations with them. And we were doing some really, really cool stuff where we we had to call back and get permission literally through the Pentagon slash White House to do some of the deals we were doing because they were potentially going to step on some big toes and Damn. We had some uh, some really big things that we were working on there. And and when we went out, we, we would go out in, you know, a two-vehicle formation. But, you know, we were all civilian clothes. Yeah. And we went out on this one operation. And as we were riding out, we came across a checkpoint. And this was an Iraqi army checkpoint. But the Iraqi army had been extorting money from contractors oh, to pass their checkpoint yeah and so we had two we had an interpreter in both cars and as we get to the checkpoint these guys and i'm in the lead car these guys are are have the the burning uh 55 gallon dr- barrels uh, oh, on the road yeah, yeah and they said you know you guys got to pay us to go by. And we're like, we're not paying you. We, we're United States military. We're not paying anybody. And these up armored vehicles have the windows are two and a half, three inches thick. And you have to literally open the door to talk. And oh, okay. They yeah. were trying to, they they wanted to talk to us. And we're on uh radios back in, in between the two vehicles. And so we have one guy in the car behind us going, don't open the door, don't open the door. And <laughs> The, the interpreter sitting next to me was going, open the door, open the door. Oh, shit. <laughs> and, so, and so finally, we're thinking, nah, we got it. We're just going to run this checkpoint. We're in an up-armored vehicle, you know, uh, and the two two threes aren't going to penetrate. We're going to go yeah. straight through. Right. And before we could start moving, this guy rolls out. He has this little bitty hut on the side of the road. This guy walks out, and he has an RPG on his shoulder. And he pointed straight at the vehicle. And we're sitting there, we're going, ah, shit. Everybody in the car at the same time said, oh, shit. Because we really thought, you know, we're good. You know, they're not going to penetrate this. But we all knew RPG would completely defeat the up armament on that vehicle. And we thought, "Uh uh-oh. So then we had to open the door. And so when we opened the door, we cracked the door to talk. And when we cracked the door, I was literally sitting at the door. So I stuck my M4 out. The interpreter was yelling over my shoulder and they were yelling back and forth and he was able to tell them. And just so happened, there was uh, a two ship formation of Black Hawks that was flying by. Yeah. And he told them, those are our helicopters. If you guys fire on us, they're going to come back and light you up. Damn, the interpreter that said was, that? Yeah. So the interpreter, the interpreters were good. I mean, these guys were Johnny on the spot. They went Savvy, out every day. man. That's smart. Yeah. Those and the helicopters had nothing to do with us. We yes, just happened right. to see them out in, in, in the distance. And the guy was like, okay. And he's he yelled back in Arabic to the guy with the RPG standing in front of standing right there in front of us. And I thought, oh God, this is this is not gonna work out. <laughs> and uh, and then that guy rolls off and and they moved it, they rolled the cans over. And on the way back, so it was only one road into this desert, one road out. On the way back. We jumped the, the curb and we were about two or three hundred meters off the road in the sand. 
and we went flying by the checkpoint and those guys came running after us but it was oh, too late this time. <laughs> nice. yeah yeah we were like nice. we're not going back through that checkpoint we're not going through that again hey, was that vehicle an up-armored land rover because i saw a couple no of- no not no, a they, no they had the uh suburbans it was up armored okay. suburbans, oh, okay. black suburbans that were up armored oh the blackwater suburbans yeah exactly <laughs> Holy shit, Ron. Gosh. I know, man. It just, uh, you know, just keeps coming. Man, and then I'm glad you're on the other end of this podcast um, somewhere in Denver and not close. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> God bless. Yeah. Well, we could go all day. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm listening to Ron almost get killed. Yeah. Um, so, uh you know, be careful scuba diving and all that stuff because all you went through, the last thing you want to do is get, you know, a bad from tank from recreation. somewhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. I, I think about that every day, man. Every time I go out. <laughs> while I was out skiing. I, I was thinking about it while I was out skiing. And and your two-year-old hears that story and we're like, he he did what? He hit a tree? How <laughs> 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 <I'm> stupid. <laughs> Upside down, jumping out of the plane? What yeah, kind of- and, but but no, he's on a green and he hit a tree and he died like Sonny Bono? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So be careful, buddy. Yes. Ah, oh, Jesus, that's great, man. Eric, what do you got for a day in history? Well, I have a good day in history, but I don't think the exploits will rival our nothing we're all shamed here sitting in, in front of uh of ron right now but let's try our best to soldier on so back in 1898 february 15th this is in regards to some navy action the uss maine explodes in cuba's havana harbor anybody heard of that before yeah no yeah I, I, maybe yeah. i don't know what did it lead to? A massive explosion of unknown origins, which sank the battleship USS Maine in Cuba's Havana Harbor on the 15th of February, killing 260 of Damn. the fewer than 400 American crew members aboard. Damn. Yeah. One of the first American battleships, the Maine weighed more than 6,000 tons and was built at a cost of more than $2 million. Ostensibly two, on a two million of, of wait, two million dollars of 1898 dollars. That's correct. Oh my two million dollars. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that's equates to quite a bit today. Jesus, so, weird. so ostensibly on a friendly visit, the Maine had been sent to Cuba to protect the interest of Americans, which were there after a rebellion against the Spanish rule broke out in January. Huh. An official U.S. Naval Court of Inquiry ruled in March that the ship was blown up by a mine in the harbor without directly placing the blame on Spain. Much of Congress and a majority of the American public expressed little doubt that Spain was responsible and called for a declaration of war. Yeah, we were well on our way. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. February 15th, the USS Maine explodes. Is that uh, is that what led to the Spanish-American War? Um, yes. As a matter of fact, subsequent diplomatic failures to resolve the main matter, coupled with United States indignation over Spain's brutal suppression of the Cuban rebellion and continued losses to American investment, led to the outbreak of the Spanish-American War in April of 1898. Jesus. So let's think about this yes, for a sir. second. That's, that's amazing. Um, to go, oh, that that incident led to the Spanish-American War. So, yeah. was it the Lusitania that led us into World War One? I? I know that was a sinking, um, but I'm not sure if that's what led it. I think we had some other course of action. No, it was uh, uh, Ferdinand. Our- well, yeah. yeah, but I mean, I thought the Lusitania is what brought us into it, wasn't it? No, I think I think Ron's right. It was the assassination of Ferdinand. Our two was, Ferdinand. Well, that's what started World War One. Yeah, yeah, right. No, but I thought the passenger enough. liner. No, I can't even. I can't even type it. Let me let me look this thing up. That's a good question, Lusitania, because I've got a, I've got a point here. Uh, let's see. When, why did Germany see who what happened to Lusitania? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's say, hey, that was a big that was a big event, right? It was uh I, I think that led 
to up to World War One too. So you got the main yep. that led to the Spanish American War. Lusitania helped lead us into World War One. Pearl Harbor helped yep. get us or led us to Pearl World War Two. You got the Pueblo. Was it the Pueblo? What was the oh the, what was the Tonkin Gulf? Right, the one that that really Vietnam, yeah, that they used to get us into Vietnam. All these navy boats sinking, leading us into war. What in the <laughs> f is going on? <laughs> right? Is that crazy? That, like, yeah. Is that crazy? Damn navy. What was the one that uh, was um, detonated? It didn't sink it. It was that destroyer that was blown up. Which one was that uh, during the Iraq War? Oh, the coal. Yeah, the coal. The coal. That's a good point too. Good one. Yeah, the coal. Well, that was part of it. All, all that terrorist Correct. stuff that was coming out. The coal was definitely a big part of that. Yeah. Damn, Navy. Navy is the instigator of all kinds. Navy. Let's let's get your <laughs> shit together. Uh, good one. All right, good one. Um, let's see. Let's try the story. We'll, we'll do it quick. You know, I, I I've been wondering about what the army's driving now, right? Because when, when I left the army in 98, it was just all Humvees and it was all soft-sided Humvees and they sucked. And the battery box was right under the passenger seat. And if you rode for a long time on that little one and a half inch cushion, they had on that sheet <laughs> metal sheet, it was hot as hot. shit, right? Yeah. God, that Humvee sucked. Yeah. Um, and none of the doors closed. Right. I mean, I, I think half the Humvees I ever rode in had like 550 cord wrapped around to keep the door closed because those soft-sided never, doors would never really you, shut right. You could never pull the windows all the way up if it rained. You were yeah, that's right. The zippers were all broken. <laughs> so now I didn't deploy over there. So I, but I know uh, part of that problem when they when they threw those Humvees over there, they were like, "Whoa, these things are getting mangled." Yeah, by all the IEDs, so they they up armored them, right? Um, and then that wasn't even sufficient for some of the IEDs. So this leads into the story about: Have you heard of what the Joint Light Tactical Vehicle is? The JLTV. Well, that's the new version of the Humvee, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what's coming out. They they've been they've been working on it since uh, for a couple of years now um and the original contract went to uh oshkosh right so <laughs> the baby maker the baby maker that's right oshkosh my gosh here's the jltv having a weapon right up your ass nice <laughs> but they had the original contract and i guess it got rebid uh and now am general has it so am uh who made the humvee they were in their initial bidding process. They lost out to Oshkosh. Uh, but now AM General has it back, winning a contract valued at $8.66 billion. Holy cow. Yeah, I know, man. So uh, but, and we'll get to what the JLTV is here in a second. In fact, I got a little video here uh, that will explain it better than I can. But uh, – Oshkosh won this contract in 2015 to replace a lot of the aging Humvee stuff. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's funny, Ron, because over the last, what have we been doing this for now? Four months, five months, six months? Um, but we've done all, all these tech stories about, oh, they're going to upgrade this. They're going to replace this. The new weapon that's coming out for the Army. The new, yeah. uh, you know, ships that are coming out. And it's like, where's all this goddamn money coming from? <laughs> Jesus, we're we're pumping a ton of money into all this stuff. Good, good. I, I guess it's good because um, it's needed. Uh, but I it just like, man, we're just replacing stuff left and right. So uh, the original. What's that? Hey, Marty, the other thing with this is what we've talked about in the past with weapon systems that we've sold to other countries. Yeah, we're doing the same thing with these vehicles too. Yeah, we find yeah. out other companies that are interested in it and say, "Okay, how many do you want?" Yeah, I'm sure absolutely, right, right. Yeah. So we got to be making some money back, right? We we're not selling so. them at cost. I hope. <laughs> uh, but uh, 
Oshkosh won this contract in 2015. Uh, they have built nearly 19,000 JLTVs to date, supplying them, just what you said, Eric, supplying them to the U.S. Army, Marine Corps, Air Force, and Navy, as well as armies in Montenegro, Brazil, Slovenia, and Lithuania. Who would have wow. thought they would have some money to go, like, hey, can you, can you throw us 10 of those things? We'll We'll take them. The U.S. Uh, arms dealership. Yeah, the, the arms dealer of the United States. Uh, the company is under contract to build uh, more than 22,000 uh, through November of this year, so before they give it up to AM General. The Army's planned procurement objective is almost 50,000 trucks. And you were over there, uh, Ron, and you were all in the up-armored stuff, right? Yes. And the Humvee has no power when it's all up-armored. Basically, yeah, right? they, they move and they shake and rattle and oh really? <laughs> oh man, they rattle really, really bad. And it's not nearly the room you think it's gonna be inside those things. It looks like a big vehicle, but when you when you're fully up armored as well and you have all your body uh, armor on. Oh god, um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard getting in, hard getting out, it's uncomfortable. It's a pain. See, it's when I was in, um, and we had to wear those goddamn masks. You know, the NBC masks, the pro masks, protective masks, getting into that Humvee and then trying to strap that seatbelt around that mask that's around your hip and all your LBE and everything else is like, God, I just, you know, and once you're in, I was like, I don't want to get out. And once you're out, I was like, I don't want to get back in because it's such a process. It's so pain in the ass. Ron, uh, what was the coolest vehicle you rode in when you were there? Was it the Suburban, or did you ride in something that you went, holy cow, this is freaking cool? The the up-armored, uh, the uh, what is it, the, the Land Rover? The British oh, Land Rover? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's what I saw. <laughs> yeah, they, they were very cool. This little video, which I'll put, uh, I'll put in the comments or in the notes uh, for anybody who wants to hear it. The venerable Humvee was the first fielded, fielded oh. to combat units in the mid-1980s. It had impressive mobility. It was fast and extremely reliable. But beginning in 2004, the vehicle that was designed for the European battlefield began to struggle when it faced a determined Iraqi insurgency that fought with improvised explosive devices or IEDs. Soon, images of burnt-out, twisted Humvees became a symbol of America's struggle to cope with a new, horrific type of warfare. And I remember, I remember those reports coming back about just the IEDs blowing the shit up from the bottom. Yeah. And they were just getting torn up in those early days. Yeah, it was just ripping through it. There was nothing yeah. on the bottom of it. So they're they're coming out uh, with this vehicle. Uh and what they what the army did was they up armored the Humvees, and then they went to the MRAPs. I, I can't remember what the MRAP stands for, but that thing looks like that Jawa trash collector from Star Wars, man, because it's tall and narrow. And just seeing that thing lumber, but it was, but it had a ton of armor, but it was slow. And then I think they went to the Strikers for a little bit. So they. Uh, Congress was like, hey, we need a new vehicle. So this JLTV, and it's been in, uh, it was first proposed like 10 years ago. So it's been a while since they've really come out with it. And I think they started fielding it in 17 or 19, something like that. Um, it's and it's just, cool yeah, it's, it's, it's cool looking. The performance is, is much, much better. Um, let's see, it, it's going, its top speed is 77, where the Humvee was like 50. It can go 100 miles further. It can carry almost 3,000 pounds more. It, it has a, The Humvee had a 6.5-liter turbo diesel, produces 190 horsepower. Damn. Which is, it's like, that's pretty, not that's not much, right? But the JLTV has the Duramax 6-liter V8, producing 400 horsepower. And plus, that's also their commercial engine, so that helps. That helps the supply line too. But I was watching some things on this JLTV, and it's really cool with all the cameras they have around it. Um, they have a thermal 
like a a suite of thermal sensors that the driver can flip down and uh, watch the thermal cameras on it. Uh, it can raise and lower itself for fording, you know, crossing rivers and also loading on the planes. It can go down to just minimal height and you can load them in there. So that's that's beneficial too. It's interesting that they're talking about uh, adding lithium ion batteries for this anti-idle capability. Have you ever heard of anti-idle? I haven't either. Um, Anti-idle system automatically cuts engine power to the JLTV during periods of extended idling, not only reducing fuel, but also extending silent watch, which is a clear advantage for warfighters who don't want to give away their positions by turning on the vehicle engine unnecessarily. So, I read that and I'm like, is that just turning the vehicle off? <laughs> I, 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 I know that's like it. <laughs> it's a simpleton view, but it's like anti-idol is, yeah, I turn the vehicle off, right? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think know. it's without you actually turning the vehicle off. Just it what just, happened when I was when I was in Vail, they had these hybrid uh, sequoias up there. And I was asking them, I thought if it was hybrid, it could run on electric or gas. And they said, no, it runs on both. So it has this anti-idle kind of uh, motor on it. So when yeah. it pulls up, it's quiet. And it's basically the electric motor is running when it's, when it's not moving. So it's running oh, on the electric motor. And it's just sitting there keeping everything powered. But then when you start to drive, it actually switches over to the other motor. So when you, you step know, on the heat. gas... Then the combustion part takes over. Correct. Huh. Now that he explained that, I've seen it in the rental cars that we've rented a couple of times. Yeah. You pull up to the light and all yeah. of a sudden it feels like the vehicle turned itself off and it's not. Then you apply pressure to the gas and it, you can hear the engine kick in. Okay. Right. Well, the BMW and Cadillac, they both have that in their vehicles as well. That's, I got you. Very cool. That's pretty cool. So they can't sit there because I I've sat in Humvees idling for hours <laughs> and just hours you're just sitting there right um, so okay that's that's pretty smart that's uh, I guess I take my smart comment back I suppose um, <laughs> but still lithium ion is like aren't those aren't those batteries that were blowing up on the planes yeah. <laughs> Aren't those the ones that catch fire and don't stop burning until there's nothing left to burn? Exactly. Uh, well, that would make me a little nervous. But they have. Uh, I was. I was reading further onto this JLTV. I know they got a fire suppression system within the cab. It's got a air conditioner in there. Like I said, it's got all this suite of cameras and shit. Um, wow. It's got uh, all the turret stuff that they can do you can remote control it from inside if you need to i saw one picture of the jltv with i don't remember what the gun was it looks like a 50 cal i'm not sure if that was it but it was completely unmanned firing so they were controlling it from inside which is probably the smartest decision ever because who wants to pop their head out that turret right, right? so you could button it up and engage bad guys from inside without placing anybody in harm's way. That's pretty that's bad. yeah, that's pretty badass. So uh very smart. Yeah, pretty cool vehicle, especially because I didn't realize that moving to the MRAPs was just like I thought the MRAP was a new vehicle. And it I I think it kind of was, but they were they were using it for a new purpose other than its intended purpose. It's because they were getting the ship blown out of themselves in, in Humvees. <laughs> Um, and the MRAP was terrible. And I don't, I, I think the striker had some limitations with the uh, suspension, with some of the engine stuff. So it's now it's kind of understandable why they went and sought this new vehicle uh, that's now in production and is now switched over to AM General. So hmm. that's a new vehicle coming. You know what? It, it, I beg, it begs the question: What's the the PMIs, the preventive maintenance? You know, with all that tech oh, on it, it's got a lot of this is not. I don't want to say it's proprietary from GM, 
but it has, you know, over the last several years, we all have a vehicle that is clued in that will give you the readout on your phone. It's like, hey, your tire pressure is a little low. Hey, you need to come in for an oil change or here's your monthly diagnostics. That's built into this JLTV. So where, where we used to have to get in the manuals and do that whole preventive maintenance checks and services on it every every day. Right. Every week. Now it's like you got this computer. It's like, oh, here, check this oil temp. Check this hydraulic fluid. Yeah, but doesn't that make it even worse when that computer goes tits up? Well, I I do think about that all the time. Uh, All this technology, like those goggles that we talked about. Right. Ron, we did that that story on those VR goggles they're trying to come out with that does this whole picture of the battlefield and all this other stuff. But the soldiers get there like, this is the most uncomfortable thing I've ever worn. (laughs) It made them all (laughs) nauseous and dizzy. And you're hooked into a battery pack that now you have to carry. So that's extra equipment. So all this technology in this thing, I remember when they were, we had specialists and privates that were trying to drive the Humvees. Now, have you ever driven a Humvee? You know, you got glow plugs on it, right? Yeah. You can't just start that damn thing up. You blow those glow, you fly the glow plugs. And we had so many people doing it that I remember the commander coming out and going, I'm going to give a reporter survey to anybody who who uh swells those glow plugs because they're not starting it right. So now you're given all this huge amount of tech over, and it's like, here, here you go, 19-year-old. Here you go. Here's yeah. your one million dollar vehicle. Don't fuck it up. And remember what Jake said about cops. We destroy our shit. <laughs> we just destroy. You just, Don't have anything better to do except occupy our time. Everybody destroys it. Even space destroys vehicles because we would get new chairs in, and those things were trashed in a couple months. So we can't even take care of chairs. Here's your million dollar uh, jail TV. Go take care of that. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> You guys like uh, Jake Gyllenhaal? Good actor. I I, I really liked him in the, the Marine Corps movie where he was. I hated that movie. Yeah. <laughs> but I I, liked I, it. I I also hated. Uh, I I think I I I think I read the story of the guy who wrote that. You know the the Marine who was the all who was all. Uh, I don't want to want to say he got all disillusioned with the Marines and he he wrote Jarhead and it really put it really put him in a bad light. I it was probably fairly realistic, but it really kind of had that kind of anti-military feel to it. Yeah. So I think I've associated him with that movie ever since, right? <laughs> well, anyway, he's got a new movie come out. I don't know if you've seen the trailer for it. It's a Guy Ritchie movie. It's called The Covenant. I don't normally like Jake Gyllenhaal, but I I do like Guy Ritchie's movies, so right. uh, I'd like to go see this. Well, uh, the movie's about a former Army Special Forces uh, sergeant, they didn't say what, what rank he was, uh, who travels back to Afghanistan to rescue a former interpreter who saved his life. So it's pretty timely. Oh, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting story. Uh, in the trailer, uh, but part of it is now. Here's what the real this real story is about. In the trailer, you see Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Army Sergeant, a beard, baseball cap, Oakleys, uh, all the special operator stuff. Uh, but in a couple shots, he's got a patch on his uniform reading JTAC. So here's where I'm going to call on you, Ron. Uh, it says JTAC, and I was like, I'm I'm not really even familiar with JTAC. Uh, this might lead to some confusion, seeing as some uh, might assume that Joint Terminal Attack Controller is an Air Force responsibility. But JTAC controllers are the people certified to control and coordinate airstrikes from the ground. The certification is sometimes confused with an Air Force Tactical Air Control Party, Attack P, or a Combat Controller, a CCT which are both military occupational specialties in the Air Force. So who is a JTAC and who is a TAC-P and CCT and what is the difference? 
for Air Force TACPs and CCTs. It's a career field. It's their one and only job. JTAC, however, is a certification. It's available to service members from all branches. So you can go to a short school and get a JTAC cert, it sounds like. Uh, and so then it's you're not a very you're, specific to either or. If you get the certification, you can be a, a TACP or a CCT guy. No. If, no, you get, no. if you get the JTAC certification, that's one thing. But TACPs and CCTs are a more extensive school, I think. Yeah. The, the JTAC guys are usually other special ops guys that need to be able to direct uh, some close air support to their team. So what they do, you know, you have to understand they're already, they've already completed all their training. They're already other, you know, uh, certified as special ops and whatever branch or group they work with. So they go through the school, they get certified and they just, they, they basically get the radio and they learn how to talk uh, in talk in uh, strikes, uh, close air support, which whatever aircraft they're they're talking to. So they get certified and they understand how to do it. But, you know, of course, combat control and and uh, and they used to be Romad, but TACP, those guys, that's all they do. But the the JTAC or the other special ops guys just get certified to do it. And, you know, they do it for you know, platoon level and, you know, the small level stuff. That's yeah, cool. And that's what that, that article went on to say that these guys are basically just at unit level. Right. Yeah. But the, but like the TAC P's and CCTs, they're more involved. They do the same. They can call it in if they need to, but they're also in the planning phase too. Right. They do all the setup, the air corridors, all that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, when I went through, Combat control. I had to go through air traffic control school at Keesler. God damn, air traffic control, really? Yeah, yeah. You have to go through the air traffic control school in order to be combat control. Ron, I was thinking I'd get some pretty cool stuff, but I can't even step on your pedestal. <laughs> here's the here's the quote of the article. JTAC certified person. Oh, no, no, wait, 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 wait. Sorry. Uh oh God. How did I screw this up? <laughs> it's all all CCT and and TACP are JTAC, but not all JTAC are CCT or TACP or something like that. Rod to the rescue! That's the one, right? Yeah, that's it. That's right. What's Ron? Real quick, what's the difference between what CCT did and what TACPs did? TACP calls in. They they work with the what we call the fast burners. So they work with the the fighter fighter planes and combat control works uh, drop zone extraction zones, uh, parachute landing zones, and they call in uh, strikes w- when they need to. But the the TACP that's their job is just to uh, be assigned to the army, and they call in in strikes because the Air Force didn't want armies controlling Air Force property, basically. And so for that reason, they said, okay, look, we can't have some army guy that doesn't know about airplanes (laughs) controlling our damn airplanes. So we got to train our own guys and then we'll, we'll, you know, have them in bed with you and let them do it. But we're not letting you guys touch our shit. I could see, I could see the Air Force general going, what army guys can do what we're doing. Well, we can't have that. (laughs) <laughs> we just gotta eliminate the army guys. We can't we can't have them showing us that it's the same thing. So uh Ron, you were were you when you were a combat controller, uh did your injuries hurt you staying in? Is that maybe why that's you exactly why I that's exactly why I got out and transitioned out moved me to combat camera. Yeah, I left that and went to camp combat camera. Okay. Well, that's that is you join a long fraternity. Of people trying to go to those schools and are busting themselves up. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I've talked to many, many guys who were in artillery and they went to Ranger School, right? And they got out of Ranger School and they're like, that school fucked me up so bad. I'll never <laughs> be a Ranger. Because <laughs> I, I screwed my knee, my ankle, my back up. Uh, they got through the school, but to do that full time. And that's why some of those special ops guys that can do that. I mean, there there is a certain DNA 
and a certain body type. Uh, and even those guys can only do it for a few years. You know, yeah. you, you see like an E7 special ops guy and you're like, hats off to you, bro. But you are rare because yeah. that's a young man's game, man. That's tough. I wanted to see one more story. Let's get it. Let's get a funny story out of Ron. Uh, Ron, what was the uh, what was the first place you lived when you got to get out of the billets or the barracks? Uh, it was in Japan. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was in Okinawa. I I moved from the barracks in Okinawa to an apartment, and it was really cool because the apartment uh, on my balcony I can look out over the beach. It was the beach was about Holy about cow. almost half a mile away. But I can look out over the beach, and it was really cool to have an apartment and uh, how much and live pay? off how much base you, in Japan. How much you pay for that thing? At the time, I think it was about seven hundred a month. This was seven hundred. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, this is Japan, so this was eighty-five, yeah. eighty-seven. God, so. bless. well, how old were you, Ron? Twenty-four, twenty-five. So it's probably close to being one of the first times you ever got to live by yourself in your own place, huh? Yeah. Other than college, you know, when I was in college, I lived in uh, an apartment. Yeah. But okay. other than that, but I had roommates. And so other than that, yeah, that was the first time I was living by myself. That's a bachelor pad out there to look. Hey, you want to come up and look at the beach? Right. <laughs> oh, you guys, you're so sexy. <laughs> I did PME at Kadena from the Philippines. I went to the NCO prep school there. Oh, I'm, you enjoyed it there then. I did, yeah. It was the first time I ever got to see a vending machine talk. <laughs> oh, really? They have that over there? Yeah. I didn't understand what it was saying, but it would talk. <laughs> Vended a soda or something. They had it was a talking vending machine. Really? Yeah. Well, let's finish this up. On behalf of all of us here, I'd like to thank you for listening today. Ron, thanks for sitting in. We really appreciate it. That was a blast. Uh, please like, share, subscribe, and let us know how we did in the comments. And as always, make sure to download the next episode for more service headline news. Ron, thanks again. Eric, thanks for the week. And I'll see you next week. You got it, Marty. Ron. Man, thanks. Ron, really appreciate you coming on, taking time. Yeah, that was fun, Ron, man. Thanks. Man.